Lily Flag Signal, mini episode 3, the non-battle of Huntsville. I'm not a Civil War person. I can tell you that I have multiple family members who fought all on the American side, mostly Ohio, I think. But I'm not the type of more buff history nerd who can just tell you all about troop movements and different leaders within the armies and the dates of the battles. My areas of interest are usually the stories of individual people or a sort of snapshot of a place at a particular time. So studying a timeline of offensives and statistics and casualties is not really my thing. However, if you've gone historical marker hunting in town, you may have noticed that, unlike many southern towns, particularly those with good access to railway lines, Huntsville is lacking in any sort of sign marking the spot of a battle for the city. Over in Madison, about 10 miles from downtown Huntsville, is a marker that reads, quote, Affair at Madison Station, May 17, 1864. The largest engagement of the Civil War in Madison County was fought during a driving rainstorm here at the site of the railroad depot. End quote. In the 1860 census, there were a little over 12,000 people living in Madison County, Alabama. The breakdown of those numbers by city doesn't include any town in the county aside from Huntsville, which had about 3,600 people just inside the city limits, which was only like one mile square around the courthouse and included on its northern edge the beautiful and important train depot. But by my count, there were barely more than a thousand people claiming Madison Station as their post office in that census. So why is it that Huntsville didn't have the largest engagement in the county? The city changed hands more than once throughout the war, and the area wasn't without strife and conflict, but why wasn't there a large battle to fight for Huntsville? The short answer is that one person chose not to forward a message. We'll be talking today about the days in which American troops first regained control of the city, as well as reading some 160-year-old diary entries, talking about trains, and learning about some clever shenanigans by telegraph operators. But first, I want to give a shout out to our sponsor for this season, We Are Huntsville. We've grown a lot since our days of a single square mile of city limits, and there's a lot of stuff to do here every day and night. To keep up with the goings-on in town, I definitely recommend following their social media. Their handle is WeAreHuntsville. My personal favorite is the Five Things to Do This Weekend series each week, but there are also calendars, blog posts, and more on their website, WeAreHuntsville.com. This is such an awesome community, and I really appreciate them choosing to sponsor our podcast. And now, a Huntsville-centric, pretty much battle-free story from the Civil War. Flag Signal, a Huntsville, Alabama history podcast that loves Morse code, trains, and Dallas Mill Deli. Conveniently, we'll have some of two of those three things coming up later this episode, but first, a Civil War refresher. Beginning in November of 1860, southern states began seceding from the U.S., starting with South Carolina. Soon a total of 11 states, including Alabama, had declared themselves separate from the United States. As Alabama's Ordinance of Secession put it, quote, It is the desire and purpose of the people of Alabama to meet the slaveholding states of the South who may approve such purpose in order to form a provisional as well as permanent government. End quote. The first capital of this new Confederate government was, for a few months, Montgomery, Alabama. The American Civil War officially started in April of 1861, when Confederates opened fire on Fort Sumter in South Carolina. As you can imagine, the remaining American states and government weren't thrilled about this and wanted to get the now-separated southern states to rejoin the country, so... war. There are a lot of great resources out there for people interested in mid-19th century American politics, the four-ish years the Confederacy existed, or the Civil War as a whole, and I definitely recommend heading to the library and learning more about it if it interests you, but this is a 20-30 to 30 minute tops local history podcast. 
So we're here today to focus specifically on the happenings in Huntsville almost exactly a year after the first battle at Fort Sumter in 1862. You've got to remember that Huntsville at this time wasn't exactly a hub of military activity. There was no arsenal. Heck, the airplane hadn't even been invented yet. So there wasn't some sort of headquarters with plenty of army equipment and personnel or anything, and people in town knew that. What Huntsville did have was the train depot, built in 1860, just before the war, where the Memphis and Charleston Railroad ran and trains stopped to exchange passengers and, nearby, freight. Seeing as how trains were a major way of moving troops and supplies, passengers and freight of the military variety, this made control of the railway an important product of the military strategy. On February 14, 1862, Leroy Pope Walker, former Confederate Secretary of War, wrote to a guy named J.P. Benjamin, the new Secretary of War, saying that he'd established his headquarters in Huntsville, but, quote, with the district as now organized, it is impossible to adopt any system of defenses at all commensurate with the magnitude of the interests involved. The Memphis and Charleston Railroad is the very backbone of the Confederacy, and its possession puts us in an imminent danger, end quote. A few notes here. Leroy Pope Walker was a descendant of Leroy Pope, the man who bought the land from the government on which Huntsville's downtown now sits, and also he'd gone to become one of the defense lawyers in the Frank James trial here in town 20-ish years later. That's episode 10 of this podcast, by the way. Five days later, on February 19, 1862, Walker wrote another letter, this time to Confederate leader General Beauregard, again worrying about the Memphis and Charleston Railroad access and saying that, quote, the whole people, both along the line of the road and the river, are in great consternation, end quote. So yeah, some people in Huntsville were aware they were somewhat sitting ducks plopped right next to a very important railway. And now we get to talk about telegraphy. There wasn't a telephone system to communicate town to town with at this point, so telegraph offices were the fastest means of communication for longer distances. News, train schedule updates, personal messages. If it needed to get there fast, sending Morse code dots and dashes along an electrified wire was the way to go. Huntsville in 1862 had a telegraph office at the Memphis and Charleston Railroad Depot, as well as another office downtown. From these telegraph offices, operators would receive messages sent in Morse code and pass them along to their intended recipient, or take messages from customers and send them on to their destination via Morse code. Or at least that's what was supposed to happen. A man named Mr. Hopper was the superintendent of the Eastern Division of the Memphis and Charleston Railroad, which was the Huntsville office. He sent the regular telegraph operator, Martin Pride, to visit family and check up on troop movements in Tennessee on April 9th. In his absence, Hopper had J. Howard Larcom take over the telegraph operations from the depot. The Larcoms, J. Howard and his wife Elizabeth, are important players in this story. Mr. Larcom appears to have started advertising his photography services in Huntsville's Southern Advocate in December of 1858, so they'd been in town at least a little over three years by the time troops were approaching Huntsville. They also operated a telegraph office in town. So on April 10th, the eve of the Americans' arrival in Huntsville, Mr. Larcom was running the train depot's telegraph office, and Mrs. Larcom was running the office in town. Reports came in from several messengers that thousands of troops were spotted only about eight miles outside of Huntsville, and according to J.M. Webb, a telegraph operator loyal to the Confederacy, quote, About 11 o'clock at night, I telegraphed to General Beauregard the facts, stating I considered it reliable. I gave the dispatch to the lady who has charge of the office uptown and requested her to send it immediately, end quote. That message was never passed along, and thus no reinforcements were sent. Oops. At around 7.30 in the morning of the next day, April 11th, American Brigadier General Ornby Mitchell arrived in town with hundreds of soldiers and no notable resistance. Since the warning messages had conveniently never been sent along to the Confederate leadership, the newcomers were able to quite literally march on in. By the end of the day, over 5,000 troops had entered Huntsville. In a message sent that day by Mitchell, he said, quote, The city was taken completely by surprise. 
no one having considered the march practicable in the time. We have captured about 200 prisoners, 15 locomotives, a large amount of passenger, box, and platform cars, the telegraphic apparatus and offices, and two southern mails. We have at length succeeded in cutting the great artery of railway intercommunication between the southern states. End quote. Another message sent a few days later by Confederate Major General Kirby Smith indicated that two other regiments had followed right behind Mitchell's group, making it, quote, a force of 8,000 to 10,000 strong, end quote, that arrived in Huntsville in total. Again, the population of Madison County as a whole in the last census then was only 12,000. That's a lot of soldiers. The historical marker outside of the train depot, which still stands today, states merely that, quote, Memphis and Charleston Railroad Company Eastern Division Headquarters in this passenger depot, adjoining yards and ships captured by Union Army April 11, 1862, end quote. Speaking of the people who lived in Madison County, much of our insight about daily life in Huntsville during the war comes from a diary written by Mary Jane Chaddock. According to the 1860 census, she was in her early 40s and was born in Massachusetts, but the uh, southernness of her Kentucky-born Cumberland Presbyterian preacher husband seems to have swayed her views such that she's staunchly on the side of the Confederates in her writings. At the start of the war, there were five enslaved people in the Chaddock household, Tom, Vienna, Karina, and her young sons, Jim and John, as well as eight Chaddock children, though not all lived in the home throughout the entire war. The first entry in Chaddock's diary is regarding April 11th, 1862, the day American troops arrived in Huntsville. It was as almost as though she wasn't really the diary-keeping type, but still felt the need to chronicle what she was seeing now that the war had come to her. I found versions of the diary online, but the best one is printed in a book called Incidents of the War, in which Nancy Rohr adds background information and explanation after Chaddock's diary entries to help form a more cohesive picture. It's unsurprisingly difficult to read just a historic diary without any context, so if you're looking for further reading on Civil War-era Huntsville, this is your book. It's also available for free online and at the library, so that's even better. Anyhow, as Mary Jane Chaddock put it, quote, On the morning of April 11th, General Mitchell's division, Federalists, took possession of Huntsville. There was no opposition, there being only a few wounded and sick Confederate soldiers in the town. They entered at daybreak, end quote. She also added that, quote, there was a great deal of excitement and consternation among the citizens, as it had not been generally believed that the enemy would be here, end quote. Considering how concerned, or consternated, Leroy Pope Walker had been about the enemy coming there, I thought it was pretty interesting that she and the people with whom she interacted were so surprised about it. It wasn't long at all before the people started suspecting the Larkums and Hopper of being responsible for the ease of Mitchell and his troops' sudden arrival. General Mitchell apparently appointed Mr. Larkum the railroad superintendent later in April. In letters to General Beauregard, it was said that Webb, the Confederate telegraph operator, quote, made inquiries in Huntsville regarding L and his wife, and he believes that they are both Lincolnites and Yankees, as well as many other parasites there, end quote. Webb also wrote, quote, they both, I believe, are northern-born, and several citizens informed me they were not sound on the southern question, end quote. The realizations started to come together for the Confederates after this, with that same letter stating that, quote, there is an office uptown connecting with the through circuit. The operator is Miss Larkham. Unless her office is cut off the depot, she can read any dispatches passing east. Indeed, intelligence was known by the citizens in town of the fight at Shiloh before Mr. Pride thought of mentioning it, end quote. He realized that, due to the way the wires among the telegraph offices were connected, Miss Larkham could easily eavesdrop on conversations and share what she learned. Now that they had the benefit of hindsight, it was all clicking together. As Nancy Rohr also points out, with far more expertise and over 140 years of hindsight, in the endnotes of Incidents of the War, 
Harper and the Larcombs were all from the same county in Pennsylvania, Washington County, about 10 miles south of Pittsburgh. So it's probable that they knew each other. As she puts it, quote, One wonders, then, about the timing of Mr. Pride's convenient errand out of town and the subsequent capture of Huntsville, end quote. I wanted to highlight this story in particular because, to me, it's a prime example of how one person's actions, Elizabeth Larcombe not passing that message along, can have such a major impact on history. Obviously, this wasn't the end of the war by any means. Control of Huntsville and that train depot would bounce back and forth again before the Confederacy dissolved in 1865, and there's a lot of local history to discuss in later episodes, but to add a few quick follow-ups. As for the people who had previously been enslaved in the Chattuck household, Tom stayed in town after the war ended and had a laundry business. Karina was able to get her young son Jim enrolled in a school in a West Huntsville church, then they and Vienna left town. Karina's other son, John, passed away of illness before the end of the war. Susan, the eldest of the Chaddock daughters, ended up marrying an American general despite her family's political leanings. When I started this show, I originally thought I wouldn't touch the Civil War with a 10-foot pole, mostly because it's such a huge topic and this is a 30-minute tops podcast where things inherently have to be broken into smaller pieces, but here I am with an 11-foot pole gently prodding at the local history giants. There are a plethora of resources out there if you want to know more about the time period too, and of course I recommend Nancy Rohr's Incidents of the War. Thanks as always to We Are Huntsville for their sponsorship of this episode and their support of the show. Check them out at wearehuntsville.com or on social media at We Are Huntsville for great information on local happenings, places to go, and things to do. You can also find the podcast online, both at lilyflagpodcast.wordpress.com and at lilyflagpodcast on Instagram. That's L-I-L-Y-F-L-A-G-G podcast, two Gs. The former has transcripts with citations for the episodes, and the latter is full of behind-the-scenes photos, history memes, and other fun social media stuff. Also, this is a reminder that if you have any burning questions about Huntsville history, send them in. The listener request episode is fast approaching. Thanks as always for listening. Until next time.